This week's episode is brought to you by The Communitor. Seriously, you guys, if you don't know what it is by now, then you're clearly just tuning us out, kind of like I do with George every time he speaks. But you get to spend a fun-filled week with us in Southern California. You get to visit Jim Henson Studios, Imagineering, and a whole bunch more. Visit fairgunmanthetravel.com and click on special offers for more information and for your obligation-free quotes. And welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And we're going to talk about Pleasure Island, which I was way too young to even really have experience at any point in time. <laughs> I think it opened when I was seven, maybe yeah, eight. Yeah, well, we can, you know, once the time travel stuff. Gets well, yeah, then out. we can go back and visit it. Did you Did you go before time travel was invented? Did you? Oh, yes, yes. Got you to did? go a few times. Did you dance? I'm, I'm just a few years older than you. Yeah, I did. Went inside mannequins and got a little sick while it spun around and we were dancing. And it was like the teacups in your oh, dance. Really? The teacups sorta. of dancing. Uh, it went really, really slow, so I'm exaggerating quite a bit. I can't wait for time travel so I can go back in time and see you dancing and to also see the probably ridiculous outfit that you were wearing while dancing at Mannequins. Uh, yeah, we won't say anything about a fanny pack. You were wearing a fanny pack when dancing? I didn't say I would say anything about a fanny pack, no. I know you said that you weren't going to say anything about a fanny pack, but I'm saying something about a fanny pack. Uh, guys, this picture I'm going to get with, with my camera when I go back in time, it's going to be awesome. So be on the lookout for that. It's going to be the cover of our first album. <laughs> it's time for Disney History. Pleasure Island opened on May 1st, 1989 and barely lasted 20 years because it closed on September 27th, 2008. Now, Pleasure Island was developed as a response to the popular Church Street Station nightclub area uh, in downtown Orlando. And it was an early entry for the Disney decade and Pleasure Island was part of Eisner's overly ambitious expansion and desire to be the only Central Florida vacation destination. Almost like he wanted to be the emperor. Almost as if he wanted to be the emperor. He came very close though. He did, he did. So, well, an original idea for the area, and I say less of an original idea than just one of the first ideas. If not had, the only idea. Not the had. only <laughs> idea was proposed by Dick Nunes, and it was a New Orleans Square-esque addition to the Walt Disney World Village in 1982. And it would have included a hotel that actually eventually turned into Port Orleans, several restaurants, shops, and lounges, including a Club 33-type lounge. Ooh, fun, fun. Exactly. So when Pleasure Island actually opened in 1989, it had an elaborate backstory for the guests to enjoy. Now, to help people understand just what the story was, it was one of Mr. Merriweather Adam Pleasure, and uh, Imagineering placed 26 plaques around the island itself that guests could seek out on their own to kind of learn the story. Now, the problem was they weren't overly obvious to the guests, <laughs> and they were usually hidden in some out-of-the-way places, and only the really, really curious to seek them out. But if you did, they were, they were really amusing bits to the fake back story and uh, each of the buildings that were part of Pleasure Island. 
So, to kind of fill in the gaps for you folks, here's some of the plaques from the island to help tell the story of Meriwether Adam Pleasure, his family, and what came to be known as Pleasure Island. And another thing you have to remember about the plaques is they were uh, black plaques with etched in writing, so they were very hard to see at night. Yes, because night was when this place actually came alive. Very so. hard to see while you were intoxicated, uh, yeah. I'm assuming. Well, I mean, I wasn't because I was too young at the time. I mean, you may have been. You, you, you could have been. Young. I mean, you okay, could have been well. hiding booze in your fanny pack or something. But yeah. All right, so let's talk about the first <laughs> plaque that you run across. And this was placed by the bridge where the ticket booths were. And it read, Pleasure Island, founded 1911. An unverifiable, anecdotal, purely subjective, theoretically theoretical, alleged purported history. Also, airsats. A living monument to the wise fool, the mad visionary, the scoundrel, the scallywag, and the seeker of enjoyment. Meriwether Adam Pleasure, who purchased the island in 1911. Pleasure's profitable canvas manufacturing sale fabricating empire, founded on this site, provided him with the capital to indulge his lifelong interest in the exotic, the experimental, and the unexplainable. Known as the Grand Funmeister, Pleasure disappeared during his 1941 circumnavigation of the Antarctic. His sons, Henry and Stuart, took over the island and the Pleasure Enterprises. Their mismanagement led to bankruptcy in 1955, interesting year. Hurricane Connie hit that same year and Pleasure Island was abandoned. In 1987, archaeologists uncovered the site and its remains and a large-scale reclamation project was begun. In 1989, the new Pleasure Island was reopened and dedicated to the legacy of Meriwether Adam Pleasure for, and the quote is, fun for all and all for fun. Placed here by the Pleasure Island Hysterical Society. And wow. that word pops up quite a bit in all the other signs, if I remember them correctly. What, the word pleasure? Yes, yes, both, oh, okay. both okay, of them both. do. Good, good, good. <laughs> so over at the Empress Lily, there was this plaque which read, uh, The Empress Lily, the Fo Floating Arts Palace, 1886. Originally christened the Floating Arts Palace, this vessel plied the mighty Mississippi River for 25 years. Boat fancier Meriwether Pleasure purchased it in 1911 to use as a home, guest house, and entertainment center when he began construction on Pleasure Island. In 1918, the former showboat was unmoored and transformed into a summer houseboat for steaming down the tree-lined waterways of central Florida. In 1971, the boat was restored to her original glory and recommissioned as the Empress Lily in honor to M Mrs. Lillian Disney. And this, kids, this is what we call revisionist history. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. Okay, so moving on. Uh, for the bridge, it said, Bridge. Oh, oh good, good okay. Show. All right, go. So originally constructed in 1914, this bridge stood until 1943 when young Stuart Pleasure, son of island founder Meriwether Pleasure, piloted the family showboat directly into the graceful span connecting Pleasure Island with the mainland. Stuart supervised the rebuilding of the bridge in 1944, but destroyed it again on September 2nd, 1954. The current bridge was built from the 1914 plans by the Walt Disney Company. So at that point, I'm wondering, you know, his father had disappeared. Otherwise, there would have been some uh, repercussions, punishments. Yes, yes, some repercussions. Yes, yes. So, so maybe the he was next filming one, a music video. Perhaps he was, and he just piloted right into it while trying to get money was. out of his father and and brothers for uh, you know some kind of corporation. Inter Corporation, yeah, yeah, worldwide. Something worldwide. Why? Okay. So the next one is uh, Meriwether's Market. 
M.A. Pleasure's original sailmaking factory 1912. Foundation and wellspring of the considerable fortune of the island founder Meriwether Adam Pleasure. Once a month during the full moon, Pleasure could be seen on the roof of this building, chanting to the goddess of the tides to keep his various enterprises afloat. Pleasure Island's first sail was completed here December 18, 1912. After the assembly of the last sail on June 4, 1931, perfectionist Meriwether Pleasure insisted that the factory be preserved intact. The building was devastated by Hurricane Connie in 1955, restored in 1989. Yeah, oh, it's a good backstory. Okay, so here. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Mannequins, a uh, dance club we won't talk about. Ma um, mannequins? Mannequins. Is that yes. the place where you wear the fanny pack and there's crazy stuff on the walls? or Maybe. Okay. Anyway. This was the Pleasure Island Canvas Works Fabrication Plant, built in 1912. Second building erected on the island, this actually housed Meriwether Pleasure's famous canvas fabrication works. In the 1930s, it was converted to a soundstage for invincible pictures, then into a design studio and workshop for various pleasure projects. Most notable of these was a huge locomotive powered by a combination of steam and magnetic power. A colossal turntable was installed to facilitate the work on this revolutionary product called Maxwell's Demon that was intended to revolutionize world transportation. It didn't. <laughs> so there we've I got the turntable. Hey, hey, the dancing turntable. Dancing, oh yes. So next one is the Fireworks Factory, Fireworks Laboratory and Storage Bunker, 1922. Island founder Meriwether Pleasure had the passion for pyrotechnics. In 1922, he persuaded China's premier fireworks inventor, the Bang Master, to immigrate to Orlando. The Master's lab and storage bunker were built on this spot, and for the next four years, Orlando citizens enjoyed stupendous Independence Day aerial displays. On July 3, 1927, a stray spark from Pleasure's pipe set off an explosion that was heard in Tampa, 82 miles away. M Mrs. Pleasure insisted that the wreckage of the factory be preserved as a reminder of Pleasure's Folly, renovated as a joint venture by the Walt Disney Company and the Levi World Company. Interesting. Noticing a trend here. Okay. So the next yeah, the next building we'll look at is the Rock and Roll Beach Club. The XZFR or XZephyr Rock and Roller Dome a roller skating dance club. Yes it was. Building X, nineteen thirty seven. Island founder and UFO enthusiast Meriwether Pleasure built his experimental X thing here. Pleasure himself designed the super amphibious aircraft that could harness the power of the wind. The X thing flew only once, September 1st, 1940, with Pleasure himself at the controls. The test flight is shrouded in mystery, but upon landing, Pleasure began broadcast to outer space. Beamed from the roof is his building, the international Morse code message repeated, W-E-L-C-O-M-E. -E. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. The, the X thing. Okay. The X thing. Okay. Next is the Videopolis East slash Cage, which was the Artificial Intelligence Lab, 1929. Built for the island founder Meriwether Pleasure's son Henry, the mad genius of Lake Buena Vista, and Henry's life work, the Pleasure Cellular Automation. Henry died thinking his experiments in artificial intelli intelligence had failed, but when the building was reopened in 1987, the automation was alive and thriving. In fact, it directed the refurbishing of its home and designed the sophisticated computer hardware that shows itself to the best advantage. I love that. The mad genius of Lake Buena Vista. Such a great fake name. That is a great fake name. So, okay. All right, moving to the Neon Armadillo, the country club. This one was called The Greenhouse, 1927. 
Constructed to house the vast array of exotic desert plants collected by island founder, a globetrotter and amateur cactagogist. Sure, we'll go with that. Cactologicalist, anyway. Meriwether Pleasure. Pleasure regarded the greenhouse as his personal Eden. He nurtured his prickly pals, as he called them, with fanatical devotion. After Pleasure's disappearance in 1941, his greenhouse was sealed off. When it was reopened in 1989, scientists discovered a huge and happy family of armadillos. The inhabitants were immortalized in neon by the island renovators. <laughs> Next mm-hmm. up is the Adventurers Club, founded Yay. in 1932. This imposing building was designed to house the huge personal library and archaeological trophy collection of island founder and compulsive explorer Mer- Meriwether Adam Pleasure. Pleasure won the plans in a game of dominoes and attributed them throughout his life to noted architects Sir Edwin Lutons, Charles Rennie McIntosh, and L.A. Sarian. The building became the headquarters for the Adventurers Club, Pleasure's zany band of globe-trotting friends. Exotic souvenirs of the members' outlandish expeditions and riotous adventures were displayed on the walls. After Pleasure vanished at sea in 1941, the club was sealed until it was opened to the public for the first time in 1989. Mm, Probably one of the most successful... Yes. Ventures yes. for Pleasure Island. And people. sadly missed. Yes, sadly missed. So. Okay, so the next one up is West End Plaza, 1941. Island founder and stargazer Meriwether Adam Pleasure was convinced during the sole flight of his X-Thing aircraft that he could make contact with alien beings. Working feverishly, Pleasure completed the world's first and only alien landing platform on July 4th, 1941. His wife, Isabella, immediately laid claim to it for her beloved Pleasure Island Philharmonic Philharmonic concert band. Much to Meriwether's disgust, how can they land when that blasted band is playing? This became the home base for the PIPCB. Next up is the Pleasure Island AMC 10 Theaters. Nice tie-in. The Pleasure (laughs) Canvas Works Fabrication Plant Number 12, 1922. Originally constructed to house island founder Meriwether Pleasure's burgeoning canvas fabrication business. Hoping to discover and patent a cheap, clean, abundant, renewable source of power, Pleasure had the building refitted in 1938 as a laboratory for testing thermomagnetics, a process designed to harness the Earth's magnetic force. The success of the experiment was proven in 1940 when the facility blew sky-high with no visible provable use of combustibles. Pleasure commanded that the ruined superstructure and outbuildings remain as a testimony to the awesome power of the planet. Rebuilt jointly by the American Multicinemas Incorporated and the Walt Disney Company, opened in 1988. Okay, Lookout Point, Pleasure Island. Defense League, 1941-44. to Son of island founder Meriwether Pleasure, paranoid Henry Pleasure, camped up here every single night from December 8, 1941 to VJ Day. He was convinced that the Axis powers were plotting an assault on America by coming ashore at Pleasure Island, which was then, and remains, 80 miles from the Atlantic Ocean. In his nearly four years of vigilance, Henry fired his musket only once. He mistook a family of herons for the leading edge of an invasion force. The herons escaped unharmed. (laughs) So, like we mentioned earlier, these are just some of the plaques, and... Some of them were so much out of the way locations that they were forgotten about, So, and they're still actually there to this day. I think uh, there's about six of them left, even though the rest of them are long, long gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're scattered throughout the island, but it's up to you to kind of find them for yourself and, and see which ones they are. We're not going to tell you everything, guys. I mean, do your own homework sometimes, please. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. 
The Art of Monsters University by Karen Paik, 2013 release, 168 pages. So both of us, and by both of us I mean Jeff and myself, love uh, the Monsters University film release. So I was really looking forward to reading the most recent Art of book from Chronicle Books. And I've had the book since the release of the film, but I didn't want to crack the spine until I had seen the film on Blu-ray. I didn't want to ruin anything. Um, right off the bat, the book is as gorgeous as the other Art of Chronicle books. They take full advantage of the digital medium of Pixar films to re reproduce the images directly in the book. And they are gorgeous. Because for, for most Art of books, they're not digital scans or photographs, like for a traditional animated film, so this is really nice. Uh, the book is divided into eight main sections that cover the development of the film. It's a great companion to the film like all the other art of books, because you gain so much insight into the film and the characters. Uh, the filmmakers discussed that they thought the movie was really going to be Sully's film. And once they got into development and the storyline of, of Mike wanting to be a scarer, obviously a role he wasn't built for, uh, was such a better choice for the story. And it really opened up the film and let them run with different ideas. The first section of the book uh, looks at the development of the characters, and not just the main ones, even though they did have to be reworked to look younger, but even the thousands of side characters that permeated the college tapestry. Uh, the filmmakers spent a lot of time developing the college itself as a character, and there were many iterations of different dorms and schools for the different types of characters, and one of my favorite pieces of concept art was for a school of trolls that was actually under a bridge. Very, very clever. Uh, just like centering on Mike, once the layout and look of the college was set down, things just fell into place. Uh, and even just flipping through the book, you get the feel that the team really spent a lot of time honing the characters, especially the fraternities. Not only were the characters of the frats themselves worked on quite heavily, but each house represented the personality of the members and the fraternity overall. So I know the big question for the Communicorps cadets is, would Jeff have pledged Slugma, Slugma Kappa, or Oedipus Hiss? You should send your answers to the Communicore Weekly email, just just so Ooh, I know. That's good. So mm -hmm. is, is Jeff, would Jeff be Slugma Slugma Kappa or Adahis Hiss? Let us know. Choose wisely. <laughs> okay, so the real reason for getting this book is the gorgeous and stunning concept artwork. And, and you can see the evolution of the characters and the college, and it really feels like it's a part of the monster's world. It's a beautiful book and worth it for anyone is interested in how a Pixar film was creative, uh, created, as well as they're very creative. But it's also a good look at animation and the process of developing a film over a period of years. It really is a gorgeous book, even on its own. Um, and I, will, I won't do my usual rant on the defamation of librarians, since they did dedicate four pages to the multi-tentacled master of her domain. Uh, so this week's book is The Art of Monsters University by Karen Paik. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. So finally, we have another window of the week for you. Seriously, we've been trying to do this for like 17 weeks, and we had so many 60-second reviews that we had to do because there's deadlines, so I kept pushing this back and pushing this back. So I'm glad I got to do it now. So my apologies to you, sir. So on the Opera House is this window, and it says, Milt Albright, Entrepreneur. No job too big, no job too small. Now, Milt Albright was originally a junior accountant at the Walt Disney Studios in 1947. However, in 1953, he tried to impress Walt by designing a mini car ride for the Disneyland project. Now, Walt, he saw Albright's talent and hired him as the manager of accounting for Disneyland. And this earned him the title of Disneyland's first official employee as well. 
Now, Albright also went on to become the manager of Marketing Special Projects, where he helped create the Magic Kingdom Club in 1958 and Disneyland's Grad Night in 1961. He retired in 1992 as the manager of Guest Communications. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. When the Disney MGM Studios first opened, it was often used for the filming of film and television shows. And as part of the original Backlot tour, you would travel down Residential Street, which had sets from various films and TV shows along it. So you can even thank Blanche for being a friend because the exterior of the Golden Girls house was there. I love that show. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> I, I miss it. So it was, it was demolished, obviously, for low, uh, lights, motors, action, stunt show, which I hate. But you can actually still see traces of some of these old sets by, of course, visiting the bathrooms by the Backlot Tour entrance. So on the walls, you'll see photos of this once widely popular area of all the houses and everything. So it's kind of like a five-legged bathroom break, if you will. So sometimes it's a five? Sure. I don't know what that would be, but we will go with that. Yeah. God, I wonder if we can rework the song for that. Some, some yeah. Sometimes it's, it's a one, two, five? That's a job for the Quicker Weekly Orchestra. I'm not going to worry about that. Yeah. That's why they get paid the zero bucks. <laughs> Eventually, though. I know they'll be up there accepting some musical award. Maybe the VMAs? Sure, we'll go with VMAs. Yeah, they could do that. They could. Is MTV sure. still around? Uh, not playing music television, but yeah, it's around. Doing Is that a thing, guys? I don't remember that's a thing. I don't know. Maybe we should pitch the Communicore Weekly idea to them. CWTV? Yeah, CWTV all the time. Ooh. It'd be just like Al TV. Which I, enjoy, I do enjoy Al TV. Oh, I do too. I do so too. That's, that's, that's cool to me. Wow. Okay, well, hey, that's another idea. Not only should Communal Cortez email the show and tell them which fraternity Jeff should have pledged, but also help us come up with script ideas or uh, ideas for the CWTV. That's it. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, that yeah we'll go with that. So, okay. Well, hey guys, thank you so much for watching and listening to another one of our shows. Yeah, be sure to leave us a comment and leave us a rating on iTunes. Yep, lots of ratings. We love the ratings. And email us those story ideas. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, Jeff's fraternity at communicorweekly at gmail.com. Be sure to also like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Yep, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Imaginerding, or at Imaginerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And be sure to leave us a voicemail on the Communicor Weekly Hotline at 424-785-4628. We've gotten a lot of them lately, and we yes. really need to carve a time out to actually do that mailbag show, because we do have a lot of really great voicemails that people have left us. We do, we do. Well, for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next time on Communicor Weekly the greatest online show. Telekinesis. <laughs>